So you know, I'm going to start with some mythology because, you know, we're going to talk about the true god. I'll start with some false gods. Hercules. Hercules and the Hydra, right? The Hydra was the monster that you cut off one head and two more pop up. Well, last week, I only got started on my sermon. <laughs> and now two more have popped up. <laughs> so I was going to do a sermon last week defining contrition, then speak about people who should feel contrite but don't, and then speak about people who, what to do when you are feeling contrite, how you deal with that. And what was going to be one sermon with three parts is now three sermons. Last week was contrition. This week is, is for you who do not feel guilty but should be pointing some fingers today. Next week will be for those who feel contrite already. What do I do with this guilt that I'm carrying around? So, so now you know what's going on. Uh, that's where we are today. We're going to look at that parable we had as our scripture reading, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And uh, interesting thing, the Bible does not say God dwells with the righteous, only with the contrite and lowly, low in spirit. Uh, and then we're going to explore a little bit how to become contrite if you are not but should be, uh, and, and hopefully that will help. So let's start with those who need no repentance. And the answer is, of course, there is no such thing. The title is for those not guilty. That's really tongue-in-cheek because you are, okay? Don't think I am not guilty. Oh, this is a message for me. I'm not guilty. It's I'm happy. Uh, if, if you're too comfortable with your lack of guilt, then, then you are in serious trouble. You are the person addressed to in this parable that... Uh, Mike read for us uh, during the scripture reading, Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. And actually, we're only going to get the first part of it today, uh, the first part of the parable. We'll hit the second half a little bit next week. But uh, uh, starting at verse 9, he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves uh, that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And, and before we go any farther, I just want to say, look who this par parable is addressed to. Some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Scary, scary words. Oh, I'm righteous. I'm okay. Uh, I, I, I'm good enough. I'm just fine. Uh, not even addressing the second part, uh, that viewing others with contempt, uh, just looking at that first part, that they trusted themselves that they were righteous. Uh, the second part is they viewed, other, or viewed others with contempt. It's just a question whether viewing others with contempt automatically happens when you start viewing yourself as righteous. Is it possible to view yourself as righteous without then looking at others badly? Or is that an automatic? Is it a given? And, and I'm, I'm just asking the question. I don't necessarily know the answer. Uh, I'm not going to say yes, absolutely, because you may say, well, no, I don't think so. I know somebody who, you know, and, and, and I don't know, you know, that kind of thing. But I think it's, 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 it's almost a surely that if, because at that point, what are you doing? You are judging yourself based on works, and you have judged your works to be good enough. Well, then that, those other people whose works are not good enough, what is their problem? Right? What is it they're not doing right? Because obviously I am. And, and you see, it, it, it's so. I, I think it would be very difficult to view yourself as righteous in that way without viewing others with contempt. Uh, so, so I have a, this question. But, but then I have the, the flip side question. Are we supposed to then always be walking around feeling crushed? 
right? We, we go back, God lives with the, with, in a high and lofty place and also with him who is crushed and lowly of heart. So we're we supposed to walk around cr- crushed and cringing all the time. You ever see a dog that's been beaten and it cringes? You know, you reach out to pet it and it, it, it cowers and slinks away. And it's like, who wants a dog like that? You don't want to do that to a dog. You don't want to, uh, to see a dog behave like that. Is that what we're supposed to be like? Like a, like a beaten dog that cringes and is afraid of constantly being beaten again? Is that, is that what he's asking for? And, and I think you can tell my answer is no. <laughs> no, that's not what we're supposed to do either. So, so what is the solution to that? Uh, well, I think confession frees you from conviction. Or at least it's supposed to. So conviction for those who need to confess until you confess, and then confession frees you from that conviction. Uh, it, it, it never moves you to trusting in yourself and your own righteousness, though, because you are aware that you can sin, and that's where lowliness of spirit comes in. Jesus in this parable is addressing two ends of the spectrum. Uh, the, the person who is self-righteous and absolutely haughty and the person who is absolutely crushed and convinced of his sin. Okay, so... Uh, the, the thing we're looking for, what we want to be, is the forgiven person living in a good relationship with Jesus Christ, aware of our potential for sinning uh, and striving for righteousness. And I don't know if that's even on the spectrum between the two. You know, if the one side is the person who's absolutely self-righteous and the other person is the person who's abs- other side is the person who's absolutely convicted, I, I don't know that the person who's in a right relationship with Jesus Christ is even on the line in between those. It seems to be like an entirely different place to my thinking, uh, but that's where we want to be. We want to get off that spectrum, that spectrum of works versus guilt. We want to be on the spectrum of forgiveness uh, and grace and living with, with Christ. But let's come back to, to our parable again. So I've just got the, how they viewed themselves. Verses 10 and 11, uh, 10, 11, and 12. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and, by the way, we don't get the proper impression from that. At the tax collector, you're supposed to go, boo, (laughs) right? He's a bad guy, boo, your snidely whiplash has just stepped on the scene. And we're supposed to automatically cringe. The problem is we all know this parable, and we know the Pharisee or the tax collector walks off the good guy, and so we think of him as the good guy, but he's not the good guy. He's the bad guy who gets a good relationship with Christ or good relationship with God. Okay, so uh, anyway, uh, back to where we were. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and began praying this in regard to, <laughs> began praying in regard to himself. <laughs> Holy cow. Uh, <laughs> Dear God, aren't you lucky? I am so awesome. <laughs> it's like, oh, you go, oh my goodness, what gall. Anyway, he began praying this in regard to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, crooked adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. Aren't you lucky, God, to have me? The world is a better place because I am here, and the universe is feasting on my righteousness. Right? It's like, ouch. Uh, he, he, first of all, the, the, how, do you, how do you boast to God? How do, how do you go to God and boast about how good you are? It, it, it's, it's really hard, hard to grab. You know, it is really, really, really good to pray for yourself. It is really, really, really not good to pray about yourself. <laughs> you know? uh, but pray, pray, pray for you. Do not forget to pray for you. Nobody knows your needs like you do. Nobody knows your temptations like you do. Nobody knows your weakness and your your hunger and your thirst like you do. So pray to God for yourself 
Ask God to bless you regularly, especially if you're getting ready to do something for God. You're getting ready to do something in Jesus' name. Pray for yourself before you do. Don't wait till you're in the middle of it and say, "Uh uh-oh, I should have prayed. Don't think, oh, this is easy. I won't need to pray about this one. I mean, we're talking about work days. Pray before you come to work days. Not when you're in the middle of the fight with that other guy who wanted the rake before you, you know, or whatever it is. Uh, pray for yourself before ministry especially, but pray for yourself. Don't not pray for yourself, but don't pray about yourself. Don't, it's like, I can, it's, it's hard to imagine how someone would do this. And then he compared himself to others based on his standards. And his standards weren't bad, right? What does he say about himself? I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. Those aren't bad things. But those are his standards by which he judges himself and judges others. And when you get to decide this is the criteria I will be judged on, uh, then you get to, and, and, and we, all have, we all have our strengths, don't we? So the criteria I'm going to be judged on, those are my strengths. I'm going to pick those ones. And because these people, they don't measure up to me. <laughs> Suckers. You know, it's, it's uh, not a good thing. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't do bad things. He compared himself based on his list of standards. And, and based on his standards, he didn't do these bad things like these other people. He says, I'm not a swindler. I'm not crooked. I'm not an adulterer. I don't collect taxes against my own people. Right? He's, uh, or crookedly or whatever it is he assumes the tax collector is doing. He compares himself and he does, I don't do the bad things this guy does. And I do these good things and he doesn't do them. I am so much better than this guy, God. Uh, thank you that I am such a good person. Uh, but as you, as you look at this, you realize, among other things, those lists are really short. There are these three things, th- th- you know, and, and the, you talk to someone, and they, when they start saying, well, I'm not that bad, the first thing they get, come up with, isn't it, I'm, I'm not a bank robber? Did you realize that about 99.9% of the population is not a bank robber? <laughs> it's like, oh, so, or probably, probably more nines, you know, after the decimal point than that, before you get to people who actually rob banks, right? And most people are not bank robbers, but I'm not a bank robber, God, so you have to let me in heaven because I'm a good person. Uh, the list is really short. And if we're judged based on comparisons and we get to choose what we're compared to or the basis we're compared on, we might do pretty well. But the reality is we don't get to do that. We don't get to choose what is being judged. We don't get to choose which things are and which things are not. Uh, and and uh, so we don't get to do that. But maybe worse than those things was in his prayer, he sees a sinner. And instead of praying for the sinner, he condemns the sinner in his prayer. Dear Lord, what a bad guy. He deserves everything he's going to He doesn't say exactly those words, but you, you hear that in, in what he's saying. Uh, and, and it's like, you have this horrible sinner in front of you. Shouldn't you, should you not, if you're a good person, be moved to pray for that guy? Uh, and instead, he's not. He, he see, and he's, he's, he's in, I mean, their version, church. He's in church. There's a sinner in church, right? You see a sinner in church. Uh, and I, sorry, I see a couple. You guys see at least one, <laughs> right? Uh, you see a sinner in church, and you go, oh, man, what's that guy doing here? Man, he's bad. He shouldn't be here. Or do you say, oh, Lord. Please speak to that person, right? Uh, and, and by the way, if you say, dear Lord, please speak to that person, then you're doing the right thing. You're not doing what this guy did. If you say, oh, Lord, blast him, let him get you know, nailed by this one, uh, hurt him, Lord, then, then you're being the Pharisee, 
If you're simply outraged, morally outraged, how dare that person? Uh, you know, and I, I, I should know better than to say it. I've said to more than one person, well, the walls haven't, or the roof hasn't caved in yet. <laughs> Usually it's people who have told me things you know, about what will happen if they come to church, and I'm just feeding back their own words. Look at that. You came to church. It didn't happen. Uh, but I shouldn't because sometimes people will take that as an offense, like I'm insulting them. And I'm, I guess I am. Anyway, he condemned the other guy in prayer. Uh, he didn't pray for him. And so the Pharisee looked really good on the outside based on his criteria. But before long, as we are with this person, as we get to know this person, we get to understand Jesus' statements when he said the Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. And the outside looks great, but the inside is full of rot and decay, and death. Uh, and, and this guy, this Pharisee, looked really good based on his categories, but he was icky inside. You know, for lack of a better way to put it, he was icky. Uh, and so we go to stay in the Gospel of Luke. We go to Luke 15, 7. You don't have to turn there, because I'm not going to turn there. I'm just going to say the words. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. doesn't mean God doesn't love righteous people, that God doesn't love good people. It just means there aren't any. There's people who think they are, but there are not. Uh, there, there are no righteous people. It's not that God doesn't like righteous people. God's not up there saying, I like those righteous people, but they're so stuffed, I'd rather hang out with the sinners so, you know, because they're stuffy, stuffy, not stuffed. Uh, because God, the answer is God knows we all need repentance. And those people, you know, when I, and, and righteousness is a goal. So we understand when I'm saying righteous, this guy's so right, I'm saying self-righteous. You know, righteous based on his own standards. Righteous based on his criteria, but not righteous in God's eyes. Not, a, not, a good, not even righteous in most of our eyes, because it doesn't take very long to see through that guy. It doesn't take very long to see that that guy is a shell. Uh, or a mockery, or a Pharisee is probably the best word that we have. God knows we all need repentance. And few things stifle your joy like the person who needs to confess but won't. The, <laughs> I was a kid. I don't know how old I was. Probably, probably older than I should have been to be deceived this way. I remember Grandma McLaughlin. Now, Grandma McLaughlin was a glorious, intimidating person, all four foot nine of her. <laughs> and, but she, she, little people rule. I mean, when I say rule, I don't mean like, yay, little people. I mean like, don't mess with them, okay? Uh, and Grandma McLaughlin, especially little old women, like, run, right? And, and anyway, I went in the house, and I didn't, I mean, I went in the kitchen, and I, I was going to, I, I think I'd been wiping off the table doing my part, and I... And I just walked in and I tossed the dish rag at the sink. And in the middle of the tossing, like the release, I realized, oh no, because she was washing dishes. And this is something we normally did. I never thought of it as wrong. But I thought, oh no, she's going to realize, or she, she's going to think that's wrong. So I hid immediately under the table across the, it was a big kitchen, under the table across the kitchen. By the way, the table didn't even have a tablecloth. <laughs> and I'm hiding under the table. And Grandma turns around obviously sees me. She says, who threw that? And I'm back down there saying, she doesn't see me. She doesn't see me. <laughs> and she says, okay, who threw that? And I swear, she waited 10 minutes, but so did I. <laughs> I never moved. I now, wouldn't it have been so much easier on both of us if I just confessed, right? It's like, she probably would have, she probably would, I mean, she obviously wanted to scold me and forgive me. I mean, that, there's no question about it. That's what grandma wanted to do. I did not give her a chance because I would not admit what I had done and pretended she didn't see me. Now, I don't know if you always come on to compare your grandmother to God. 
<laughs> but he sees you and he knows and he's waiting for you to confess. And as long as you hide, what do you think you're gaining by that? What do you think you're getting that you didn't already have? Few things stifle joy like a sinner who proclaims his innocence and pretends he did no wrong. Okay? Uh, that's what's going on here. So there are those who think they are okay and they have nothing to repent of. I want to tell you, they are self-deceived. And when I say they, I may be saying you. In fact, I may be saying you to a lot of people who don't think I'm saying you. Uh, but let's move on. I want to start move on to back to Isaiah chapter 57. God does not dwell with the self-righteous, right? Our verse is verse 15, Isaiah 57, verse 15. For this is what the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says. I dwell in a high and holy place. Now, that's proper. The holy one, the one who's truly holy, lives in a high and holy place. Pure, sinless, blameless, spotless, right? It's perfect for him. And then he says the shocking part, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Where God does dwell, he dwells in a high and lofty place, and he dwells with the contrite and lowly. And it doesn't say anything about the in-between people, right? Uh, no mention of here, here of those who think they are okay or those who have judged themselves to be okay. When you think, when you, think you are good enough, you are not the opposite of contrite. I want, I want to make this, get this understanding across. It's not be contrite or be proud. It's be contrite or be lowly of spirit. Lowly of spirit is the opposite that we're looking for. Not contrition. Not that constant, because the word contrite means crushed. And we're not to go always around crushed over our sins. There are times to be crushed over our sin and guilt, and there are times to be restored from that. And at that point, we are what? Lowly of spirit. Okay, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The person who is not proud, the person who is not arrogant, the person who is humble, who recognizes there but for the grace of God go I. The person who says, I could be like that, I was like that, that. If, I'm not, if it wasn't for God, I would be like that still. It is not important for you to go around feeling guilty all the time. It is not important for you to go around feeling crushed. Uh, it says God dwells, with, God dwells with them for a purpose, right? Uh, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. God dwells with the crushed, the contrite, so that he can restore them to something better than that, but not arrogance, to, to a lowly of spirit position, a, a position that is walking not, not in guilt and shame, but is walking with the knowledge of forgiveness, right? The freedom and the joy and the relationship of God that come from that. He doesn't restore us so that we can keep on feeling guilty. James in the New Testament, just in case you think, well, that's Old Testament. What does the New Testament have to do with that? James says it this way in James chapter 4. James verses 4 through 6. James chapter 4, verses 4, or 6 through 10, sorry. James 4, 6 through 10. But he gives greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and he will come close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Anybody remember that? Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Annie smiles. Every, every old song I ever mentioned, Annie just smiles. There's not one I know that she doesn't know. <laughs> I tried to find one once, and she knew it. Uh, 
humble thyself in the sight of the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. There's a purpose. He doesn't want us to stay crushed. He doesn't want us to stay crumbled and contrite. And in that, he will lift us up when we humble ourselves. He's got a purpose behind this. He has a goal. It's not to continue being contrite. It's to continue being poor in spirit. It's to continue being humble before God. And there is, it's not having such a high opinion of ourselves that we think we have nothing to confess but an honest opinion of ourself that is quick to confess when we recognize we've done something. Uh, we, we, keep sh- we call it keeping short accounts with God. It's the ability to admit fault, to accept correction, and to confess sin. And, and hopefully you don't need to, be, to have that horrible contrite feeling because you don't let it go far enough for that. But if you do, then contrition becomes the important thing. And we have no mention in this passage back in, back in uh, Isaiah of God dwelling with the good. Not the extremely righteous, not the moderately okay. Most of us, we think of ourselves, I'm, I'm okay, I do okay, I'm, I'm as good as the next guy. Well, that's really nice, because <laughs> the next guy, he has problems. Uh, make sure you understand, make, this is, this is, this is a, a, an application that I think everybody will understand. Only sinners need apply. Right? Only sinners need to apply. You don't get to go and, and, and show your credentials and show God how righteous you are. You have to go and show Him what you really are. You're not trying to pad your resume. You're trying to be honest with God and present to Him the you that you really are and say, I know this is a sinful me, and I know I need your help. And God looks and says, yes, you do. But then He says, let's start working on that. And He starts with forgiving us for our sins, and then He starts making us that person we were pretending to be in the first place. God only dwells with people who know they need him. People who are okay with themselves can go somewhere else and be okay with themselves someplace else because God only dwells with people who acknowledge that they need him. Do not be okay with yourself. Do not be satisfied. Uh, If you quickly or easily write yourself a pass, who are you more like, the Pharisee or the tax collector? Because that Pharisee, he was writing himself a pass right off the bat. But the tax collector, all he could see was his guilt. He couldn't get far enough. I mean, as Jesus says he left uh, uh, forgiven, I think was the word he used. Uh, and he left rightly. We'll look at him more next week. But he had to get there. Uh, if you write yourself a pass too quickly, you're like the Pharisee. And if you do, do this a quick occasionally, I mean, by occasionally, I mean review yourself. Do an inventory of yourself occasionally. Evaluate yourself. Try to be honest with yourself. Uh, then, then I'll tell you, good job. Keep doing that. But if you don't do that, if you, if you can't remember the last time you did that, if you can't remember ever doing that, then do it. Look at yourself honestly. Evaluate yourself. Uh, and, and if you do it, good job. If you don't do it, take this as a kick in the rear and do it. Uh, go and do it. But, but let's come back to the, the, the last question I have. The main question, the hard question is, is how do you manufacture contrition? You say, you say I'm, you tell me I'm supposed to feel guilty, I'm supposed to feel contrite, but, but uh, I, don't, I don't. So what am I supposed to do, pretend? You know, there's that saying, fake it till you make it. Is that what God wants us to do? Pretend to be guilty and eventually we'll start to feel guilty. And then, uh, you know, I, uh, I shared last week about how I would lie at confession. <laughs> I mean, I didn't share it quite that far. I told how I would go, and I'd, I'd uh, not really feel guilty, but I'd make up sins. I'd pretend. I'd think, well, he knows I've sinned, so I, I, I can't think of anything I've done. So I'd tell him, well, I fought with my brother. I yelled at my sister. I stole candy, and, and I just made things up because it sounded believable. And he gave me 
penance, which I went and actually really, which would meant saying prayers, and I actually did those things. Uh, so, did, but did I ever actually create a feeling of guilt? It's really funny because one of the ladies, who, we have a lot of former Catholics here. I'm not the only one. One of the ladies came up afterwards, and she told me how seriously she took confession. And she said it was it terrified her. And the act of the prayer that I couldn't remember, that I would say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. I can't remember the prayer. <laughs> she, was, she would say that, and she was terrified by the words of it. And she was scared to death that she didn't get it right. And she would do those things. I'm going, wow. You know, there's Catholics and there's Catholics. <laughs> I was not, I was the fake Catholic. I was a, a uh, you know, it didn't matter to me. Uh, so, so do we pretend guilt? Do we just try to try to act like we're guilty and hope it comes to comes true? The, the answer is, if if God was interested in that, then the Pharisee had everything right, because he pretended to be right. Uh, he pretended it was a show. It didn't matter. But this is not about a show. This is about reality. What is real? Uh, I want to turn to a verse in Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah chapter four, verse three, and this is this is this is this verse is repeated very similarly in the book of Hosea but I like the surroundings of it in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 3. I like, I learned this with the word fallow. This version says uncultivated. And the more I thought about it, uncultivated is probably a better word than fallow, but I like fallow because it sounds better. But... uh, Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 3, For this is what the Lord says to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, Break up your uncultivated ground and do not sow among the thorns. Break up your uncultivated ground and do not sow among the thorns. He's not talking about your farming techniques. He's talking about, he's using farming techniques to illustrate a truth. In fact, so let's start um, a little bit before this. Chapter 4, verse 1. If you will return, Israel declares the Lord, then you should return to me. And if you will put away your detestable things from my presence and will not waver, and if you will swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then the nations will bless themselves in him, and they, in him they will boast. For this is what the Lord says to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, Break up your uncultivated ground, and do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your hearts, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my, else my wrath. Uh, will spread like fire and burn with no one to quench it because of your evil deeds. He says, break up your fallow ground, your uncultivated ground, your unplowed ground. There's a reason farmers plow. Actually, I think the reason farmers plow is because it's that time of year and they're bored, you know, need something to do. You know, I have this big tractor and all this heavy equipment. I'm going to, let's go out and use it, you know. No. (laughs) There's a reason farmers plow because they want their seed to go into the ground. Uh, the, I, picture, I picture the first settlers to come into the land. Uh, you know, the, the clod hoppers, the clod busters, whatever you want to call them. I picture, I picture them, to, to come, them, them coming in with their wagons. They've got a, a single bit plow loaded up on the back. And they come in and they see this hard, dry ground. They say, I'm going to put my farm here. And they get out that plow, and they take that mule or that ox that is out pulling the wagon, and they hook them up to the plow, and they dig that plow in, and they start walking behind the plow day after day to plow up one acre. And it's hard because the ground is hard. It's unplowed ground. But they do it because if they go out and just throw that seed out on the ground without doing that, then it's just going to bounce there and be bird food. 
right? And it won't accomplish anything good. In the parable of the soils, this is the first soil. In the parable of the soils, Jesus says a farmer went out to sow and he threw a seed and some fell on the hard ground and it just lay there and the birds came and scooped it up. Later he comes, that's like Satan, and the word sits on your heart and Satan takes it away. And it never produces anything. And Jeremiah says, break up your fallow ground or break up your uncultivated ground. And he says, says uh, make your, essentially saying, and then he goes on and starts talking about the heart of all things. He says, make your heart ready to receive the word. Make your heart ready to receive the word of God. We are hard. We have hard Shallow, I'm going to use the word shallow instead of foul. We have hard, shallow hearts. You know, we are about that deep in our relationship with God. We, we let it go that deep, and that's all. And roots will not grow there. We, we, we say we're okay because we hear it. We give it lip service. We, we respond to it. We have hard, shallow hearts, and it takes works. it takes work to penetrate them. We scratch the surface, and we call that breaking the ground. And it's not. The plow's got to go deep. The plow's got to go deep and truly break up the ground. It doesn't get a scratch at the top. It's, it's not like a little child who the mom says, clean up the room, and he goes and throws everything in the closet or under the bed and says, it's clean, mom. You know, there's a difference between kid clean and mom clean. <laughs> it's got to be mom clean. This, this dirt has to be plowed. It has to be really plowed, not scratched. It's not to where you, you say you, you, you go through the motions and you say you did the job because you went through the motions. It's because you actually do the work that it takes to do this. We, we scratch it. We, we, we call that breaking up the ground. Uh, the seed cannot penetrate, and the Word of God does not take root and produce in us what it's supposed to do. But we are satisfied because we went through the motions. Uh, not caring if we actually accomplish anything. That's, that's what we're like. Okay, so I'm, gonna, I'm still going to say, I'm, I'm going to say you can manufacture contrition. Manufacture, not make, but, but nourish it is maybe word, bring it, nurture it. But the first thing you need to know is that it doesn't come easy. It doesn't come easy. Uh, it requires hard work. And the soil you will be working on is yourself. And you don't like it. It is not pleasant to work on yourself this way, but do the work anyway. And, and you go, well, what work do I do? I'm going to, oh, well, this is easy, read and pray. You go, okay, I've got that. I, I do that. Okay, sounds easy, but let me be more specific, okay? Let's try the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, turn there, please. Exodus, Exodus 20, Ten Commandments, nothing else, remember that. We're only going to look at the first. Now, when we talk about the Ten Commandments, let me talk a little bit about the Christian's relationship to the Ten Commandments, okay? Because I'll have people occasionally ask me, do you believe in the Ten Commandments? Well, that's a trick question and a trap. Because if you say no, then they say, well, they tell us how to be right before God. Yeah, but I'm not saying when I say I don't believe in the Ten Commandments, I'm not saying I don't believe they're good. I'm saying I don't believe they'll get me to heaven, right? My goal in life is not to follow the Ten Commandments. I'm saved through Jesus Christ. But they do teach us good things, but we want to recognize that. Uh, so, so it's like, do I believe in them? Well, they're in the Bible. Of course I believe in them. But at the same time, you know, what do I do with that fourth commandment, honor the Sabbath, to keep, keep it holy? And the answer is, is uh, 
Not that I want to get into that real deep. If you struggle with that, read Hebrews 4. You find we enter our Sabbath rest through faith in Christ. Okay? We enter our Sabbath rest. We do not any longer need to do works to earn salvation, to be good enough. We do those works to please God, but, but not to enter salvation. And we don't have to have Sabbath on the Saturday and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so, so that's just going through there. So I just want to ad- address the Christian's relationship to the Ten Commandments. They're good for teaching us what is pleasing to God, what he wants us to do. But let's look at the first commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You say, I don't get it, preacher. No problem. I'm a Christian. Jesus is my God. God Trinity, God Father, God Son, God the Holy Spirit. I have no other gods before them. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm going to real quick read you a little passage in Romans chapter 6. Take me just a minute. I wasn't planning on doing this, but it is just so appropriate. Romans chapter 6. Therefore, starting at verse 12, therefore, sin is not to reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its lust. And do not go on presenting parts of your body as sin to instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your body's parts as instruments uh, of righteousness for you. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Far from it. Do you not know that the one to whom you present yourselves as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the same one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Keep going on. And after being freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented the parts of your body as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so you present your body parts as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in relation to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you receiving from the things you derived of? And you see why I went there? Because he's talking about the things we were slaves to. Come back to Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You were slaves in Egypt. That's what you were in Egypt. You were slaves. He says, I brought you out of there. Okay. Did you know that when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they brought the gods of Egypt with them? Ezekiel. I looked, I thought, I thought this was stated more clearly in more places, but I finally found it in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 5 through 8. Ezekiel is, God is telling Ezekiel to speak to the people. Ezekiel 20, verses 5 through 8. And say to them, this is what the Lord God says. On the day when I chose Israel... 
and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt. When I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God, on that day I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all the lands. And I said to them, Throw away each of you the detestable things of his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not throw them away, each of them, the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they abandon the idols of Egypt. And you go, God just delivered you from the land of slavery. You brought the idols of slavery with you? You were slaves in that land. You called out to God. You called for deliverance because your misery was so great. You were slaves, and he brought you out of that, and you brought those idols with you? You go, how could that possibly be? Let me ask you a question. What idols have you brought into your Christian walk from your land of slavery? What were you saved from that you still do? Because if you have things that you were saved from, and you know, I'm not saying your life becomes 100% different, but what things are you enslaved to that you were enslaved then, and at that time it caused you great guilt, and now you're forgiven, and you say, but I can still do that. You've broken the first commandment. We only got through one. I'm not going to go through more. What do we do? I'm saying dig deeper. Don't give that a shallow reading. How many times have you heard or read or said the Ten Commandments or had them presented to you and, and, it, and it scratches the surface? It's like a good back scratch. You know, feels so good, doesn't it? How many of you want to do this right now? <laughs> you know, just, it's like a good back scratch, but it doesn't penetrate the surface. Read honestly. Read what's there. See what's there. And pray as God reveals to you your guilt. Break up the fallow ground. It's hard work to do that. What I just did there in, in the first commandment, that, that took some work. Right? I'm sitting there, I'm going, okay, where can I find this passage? Where can I find that passage? Does the Bible say this? And I'm, I'm, I did work. And I've got all the tools. You don't have all my tools. Right? It's harder for you to find the same thing I just found. But you can do it. And God will speak to you as you do. Break up the fallow ground. Do not be satisfied with unproductive, hard soil or a hard, unproductive, hard heart that God's work cannot penetrate and do anything with. As you, as you read this first commandment and you ask God to reveal to you what you're dragging along, uh, what you are hauling along, the slavery, the idols that you are bringing from your land of slavery, you may feel that fallow ground breaking up. It may be penetrating your heart. You may be seeing those things. That's what it feels like. That's what it is. You may see your guilt. You may feel shame. That's okay. You're starting to gain that attitude that allows God to dwell with you. It allows God to go as deep as you go. God will go that deep. God will, he will not abandon you in that. He will go that deep with you. 
okay? And, and you, will, it, you may experience the guilt of contrition, and you will experience the freedom of that humble walk with God, and you will be better for it. Answer is real simple. Read and pray and go deep. I'm talking about contrition for people who, are, who, who, who don't know what contrition is. And I say that, I'm not saying pointing to you. I don't have anybody in mind specifically. I'm saying we as American Christians have a, we're just shallow people. We don't let things go deep. Contrition is not the goal. Contrition is the means to the goal. And God will not leave you there. And if you, if you feel like, I, well, preacher, I've been left there, then next week come back <laughs> because we'll be talking about that. But what you want is humility, that lowly spirit that exalts God and not yourself, that says, I need God, because then he will dwell with you, right? Once again, Isaiah 57, 15, for this is what the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says, I dwell in a high and lowly place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. Right? The contrition, that sense of guilt and shame doesn't have to last, but the lowliness of spirit should. Humility, honesty, integrity before God. That attitude that says, I need God. Because when you have the attitude that says, I need God, God is there. That's what he wants with us. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I ask for an integrity of heart for each one of us. For an honesty as we relate to you, as we relate to your word. Father, I ask for humble hearts. Lord, I ask you to go deep. I ask you to reveal my sin. And I ask you for the courage and the faith to go there and to deal with it. I pray in Jesus' name.